This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, it's Jim here from The Blank Podcast. Um, just letting you know, for the next few weeks we're releasing some classic episodes um, ahead of us returning with some more newer, recent episodes. Um, what we're doing is we're using these few weeks off to record as many as possible so we can get ahead of ourselves and then come back at the end of May with a bang um, and release more new episodes. So we've handpicked a couple of our favourite episodes from the archives and we hope you enjoy them. This episode is with John Sweeney. We put it out because he's obviously in Ukraine at the moment covering the war and being very active there especially on Twitter so we thought it'd be a timely one to remind ourselves of the interview we did with John uh, back in in april 2020 i believe two years ago so hope you enjoy it obviously if you're new to blank then you may not have heard this episode before so do go back and listen to more from the back catalog and tweet us of course or instagram us at blank pod let us know if you've enjoyed this classic episode or any more from the archives that you've enjoyed um, so that's it we'll see you in a few weeks for some new episodes but until then enjoy these retro classic episodes on the blank podcast and welcome to The Blank Podcast, a podcast where we delve into those difficult moments with some well-known guests. I'm Giles Prader Phillips and with me in his boot cupboard <laughs> at, there's any boots in, in Chesham, it's Jim Daly. Well, I was thinking like a boot room, you know, where you keep all your football boots. Oh yeah, I wish it was a boot room. I wish I was in a boot room. That, that means I'd be playing football soon, which would be great. Yeah, I don't, do miss that. I don't think they call them boot cupboards. I don't know why. I, was, no. I think it was a cross between boot room and... Um, Broom cupboard. Broom cupboard, which is obviously a mm. reference to. Although the, Pip the boot cupboard with Jim Daly does sound like a podcast. Yes. Doesn't it? There you go, mate. You can have that one. I don't know what I talk about. Just my boot, my football boots or something. But um, anyway, yeah. how are you? I'm all right. Yeah, it's a really, really hot. It's been really hot here um, down on the south coast um, yesterday. I think it's going to go up to about 24 today, 25, something mm. like that. It's, quite it's warm. really hot today. Before our pod, I popped to the post office, not post office, to one of the post box down the road to mm. put something in the post. And uh, I was sweating mad- badly. It was yeah, really, yeah. It's really, it's, it's, oh, it's really hot. Yeah, it's just suddenly changed the temperature. And I think being, partic- you know, typically British, suddenly going from wearing coats to 
flip flops yeah. is a is a is a, it's a transition that I don't find pleasant. Oh, I just stick stay in the flip flops, mate. Stay in the flip flops yeah. and shorts as long as possible. That's my uh, that's my mantra. Mm. Um, we've got a fantastic guest on today's podcast. A real, actually, talking about British, real sort of British institution in terms of journalism. Yes. Um, Mr. John Sweeney, who has been there and done it and stood up to some pretty <laughs> big names, which he comes onto to this, po- onto this podcast, like uh, Trump and the Scientologist. He's got some great stories, which he shares. Yeah, yesterday. I mean, wow. Yeah, John, it's great to get him on. We've been, I've been talking to John about coming on for a while, and it's, you know, it's a real um, privilege to sit with him and talk to him. I mean, Obviously, we're doing it via Zoom, but uh, it's nice to be able to see his face and hear him and talk to him. And yeah, we talked about all sorts of things, covered a lot, big part of his career from his sort of early days as a local journalist, which I know you have in common as well. Um, <laughs> it's not the only thing I got in yeah, common. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and yeah, and then, yeah, just been going to war torn countries, um, challenging Trump um, in interviews, Putin, he's, he's sort of almost doorstepped Putin at one point at an airport. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, and obviously uh, Tommy Robinson more recently, which was, you know, played has played a significant part in, in, in kind of his career to, to date, actually. And um, we talk a lot about that, actually, with him. Yeah, and he was really honest and open about it, actually, which, um, you know, we really appreciate people on this podcast being sort of open about mm. the ups and downs. And it's it's fascinating to hear him, hear him talk about it. Um, just a really great guy yeah, and yeah. uh you know we, i know we said about obviously it's over zoom but we might be able to meet up in the toucan in soho at some yeah point yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely to, buy uh, up. definitely buy john a guinness. we owe him a guinness yeah, yeah. Um, before um, we dive in i was going to say we've got some got some uh, messages here about our podcast which is always nice to receive always nice yeah yeah i've got one here from rich from bacomi um spoken to rich recently he's a really lovely guy and does a great podcast actually and he said loving blank pod with chris addison and brightening up this sunny morning even more thanks giles and jim and by the way the japanese term for letting books pile up without reading them is now i have to see if i can say this right sundoku fantastic it's got a t at the beginning but i'm assuming it's a silent t so I'm mm, going to go with like sun- tsunami. Yeah. So I think it's Sundoku, which is a really great word. Sundoku. That's great. I'm sure Chris will absolutely love that as well. It's so nice that we got pe- we've got such a range of listeners that we got people that can answer these questions we chuck out. Yeah, there it's brilliant. Yeah, with yeah. the actual knowledge, that's great. So, yeah, Rich, so- thank you so much for that. Have you got uh, one there, Jim? I've got an iTunes review because obviously we're you know we love it when people can review us on iTunes and we've got. Um, Loads of five star reviews, which is really, really kind, mm. and some lovely comments. And this one comes from JW487. It's another five star review, which we really thank you for. And Jay says, Awesome. Uh, such a joy to listen to. Wonderful and compelling interviews. Highly recommended. So thank oh. you, uh, JW487, yeah, for leaving us a review. We do yeah. love all your messages, so please do keep them coming. You can um, tweet us at, uh, at BlankPod, or you can send us nice messages on Instagram. At blank pod, or you could email us at our email address, which is the blank podcast twenty eighteen at gmail dot com. Fantastic, well read, Jim. <laughs> Did I get it right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I say think so because it might not be. Well, we'll see. <laughs> um, all right, let, let's crack on with our fantastic chat with the one and only John Sweeney. <laughs>
so you're you're kind of adapting to this situation yourself, John. We've got um, obviously you've started your own podcast, and uh, you're uh, sort of coming to terms with this sort of new way of working. Yeah, the new way of living, new way of working. Um, weirdly, you adapt. It's astonishing how quickly you adapt to the new normal. Um, yeah. I, um, um, hey, oh, man, I miss pubs. I miss my kids. <laughs> I miss, I mean, should I list? Oh, I mean, I, I yeah, miss go, my kids. I miss my, but what I really <laughs> miss is the Cheshire Cheese, the, um, the Toucan in Soho Square. Um, the Salisbury in that little street somewhere near Soho, the um, um, the French pub in Soho, um, the joy of going to any old rubbish pub and just popping in and having a, a quick drink and trying to do the private eye crossword. So I miss the, um, I miss tons and tons of things about uh, my old life uh, and. Um, I've got a little place uh, in Italy, and I love Italy, and I miss Italy so much. And at the same time, um, I live in um, in Lambeth, and it's a lovely walk for me to walk along the river to St. Paul's and back. And it's so quiet and so beautiful. And I, I, um, I, I went on to the. Um, I was walking my dog Bertie, who, who we'll hear from at some point during this. And um, I took Bertie down onto the uh, the tides out. I took him out onto the beach, and um, there was a uh, uh, there was, to be honest, a, a very attractive, very beautiful woman uh, with a little kid. And I said, "It's just like Saint Tropez, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> and she said, "You what?" Um, <laughs> Lambus never been described like that before. Yeah, say the, the the pub thing is is that back from the days you know being a journo and and sort of hearing hearing stories and being like those sort of liquid lunches. I was wondered if that stems from that time. Yes, yes. So I am very much uh, an old school reporter, and I loved um, uh, I loved Fleet Street. I worked on the Sheffield Telegraph. Um, I did a story about a, um, an, a con man called Eric Vorza, and uh, he denied it. And um, eventually uh, he was prosecuted for, for fraud and was found not guilty. And then I can remember the moment in the dock where he, he rubbed his hands and he <laughs> looked at me and he sued the paper. So one of, the, one of my uh, less great claims to fame is that I helped uh, close down the Sheffield Telegraph as a, oh. as a, as a, as a paper. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and this so after that success, I've never really looked back. I've everything I've touched mm. has turned to dross. The Observer, the BBC. I I haven't quite finished with the BBC, but I'm <laughs> no, 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 no. I, listen, I love the BBC. I, I left in difficult circumstances, but never mind. I still love the thing. I love the Observer, and it's still going strong. But it always felt as though that just as I arrived, you know, all the money had gone, and things were becoming more and more mm. difficult. Um, and obviously, it's far worse for, um, for the young people who are starting out now. But I, um, so the Observer was a fantastic paper to work on. It had a, um, I think the Guardian has a kind of slightly puritanical thing, and the Observer always, was always on the left, always thought about the underdog, but was cavalier in the old sense of of the thing. But it was old money, or there was a smell of old money about it that people. There was a kind of memory of the people who'd been in special operations executive or special forces stuff during the war. And 
who were very funny and took the piss out of power and that was their natural setting and and i've mm. and i've loved that and it, but we used to on you know tuesday we'd have a boring ideas meeting and then we'd all go to the pub and frankly you could spend all day and all night in the pub again and again and again and then on saturday you you had to write something that was good uh, or in fact bloody good um and yeah. because my attitude was was all wrong um and there was i mean one there are many stories, but um, uh, one of the ones um, that will go down, and I'm both ashamed and embarrassed and a little bit proud all at the same time, but there's a, a friend of mine, John Diamond, who tragically died of, uh, of, of mouth cancer, uh, and he was married to Nigella Lawson. Um, but John was very, very funny, and he um, had a show called The Midnight Hour on BBC Five Live at midnight. And I'd done a, a big piece for the Observer magazine back in the, this is the late 80s, I think, the very late 80s. And I'd done a big piece about uh, conspiracy theories, the the fruitcakes who believe in alien abduction. Uh, by the way, I, okay. I don't know. What are your views on alien abduction? Are you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never been probed or anything like that. Okay, so. yeah. Anyway, the uh, the space alien probe is coming for you, Giles. So, okay. um, so anyway, so and he also invited. So what John did was he invited four Fruit Loops um, on his show, and then me. Um, yeah. to talk to the other side. So there was a guy from the Alien Abduction Society who believed he'd been abducted by aliens, somebody from the Flat Earth Society, and somebody um, who believed that um, the royal family were um, 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 flesh-eating lizard, uh, space lizards. I thought it wasn't oh. David Icke, was it? It was... It was <laughs> It was somebody, somebody a bit like David Icke, but not David Icke. <laughs> okay. and, and obviously, by the way, the, the, the guy's entirely right about the royal family. Oh, uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, but it was, it was sort of like, anyway, so it, was, it starts at midnight, and I, didn't, and I lived in Wimbledon at the time, and I thought, oh, fuck, I'm going to go home. And one of my mates had just come back from somewhere awful. So, come on, John, let's go for a swift one. This was like six o'clock. And then the swift one turned into, a, you know, a two and kind of like the virus, it multi- the alcohol multiplied. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have a very, anyway, I don't know what happened, but I think I turned up and I was tamed, turned away by BBC security because I, um, I was away with the fairies. <laughs> and, and John, John had, had to deal with these four nutters on his show and it ran for two hours. And my, oh my friend, God. my friend Martin Bright, listened to him introduce and uh, uh, Mr. Tharg from the Alien Abduction Society, uh, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Ron Tardis, who believes uh, the royal family are space alien lizards, and the man from the Earth Society, and John Sweeney, who we hope will be joining us shortly. And, <laughs> and, and, and Martin, Martin, <laughs> Martin listened all the way through. To, to five to two in the morning and John's last thing was and then uh, so we were listening to me John Diamond the man from the uh, who thinks the Royal Family Space Alien Lizards the man from the Alien <laughs> Abduction Society and the man from Blood Earth Society and, and John Sweeney who we now have to assume has been abducted by aliens <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was and, 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 and that was a normal week 
<laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, John, I, if it makes you feel any better, I have also closed a local newspaper. Aha, well done. What, how do you do it? Uh, it was the Uckfield Courier. It was my first <laughs> job in journalism. And it was just over a, over, over a year, slow decline. Just my general presence being there led to fewer and fewer and fewer. Uh, well, basically, what I used to do was I'd pick up a copy of the rival paper, which was the Sussex Express, read their front page, and just do a like, follow-up for next week's paper, which it turns out was not a great way to be a local reporter. <laughs> You're um, being... Uh, uh, fundamentally, the internet has killed um, the economic base of local papers. Mm. And yeah. um, and I fear that the um, one of the effects of the virus will be uh, that um, everybody has got way more tech savvy. I, I'm, I am uh, uh, massively... Um, I wasn't bad, but I am massively better at dealing with the tech mm. than, I, than I used to be. And that goes for... Also, it's one of my best friends, my be- oldest friend, Jonathan Gebby, He's a rocket scientist, and he actually put the you know the, the tin can that uh, they fired at the moon, and there was a guy mm, who spoke mm. like Wurzel Gummidge who was in charge of it. So, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, <laughs> my friend uh, Jonathan, whose maths homework I used to pinch when I was at school, and I would always get <laughs> F, G, H, D, minus, minus, <laughs> minus, and then A, triple, star, star, star. Anyway, but he's been... T- <laughs> He's been teaching his 91-year-old mum how to, how to do Zoom calls so she can talk to the grandkids or whatever. Yeah. And he said it was, it was easier putting the um, um, Beagle 2 on Mars. Uh, than... <laughs> <laughs> but a consequence of this will be, I think, that, the, um, that people... Uh, the old habit of buying newspapers um, um, may uh, may suffer. Now, I may be wrong about this. The thing I'm most afraid of in terms of uh, great British institutions that may be in trouble after this, and you've already heard the anxiety, is pubs. But I think the one thing I trust Boris and his government to do is to make sure pubs will be okay. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think they've screwed up. Uh, time and time again, the lockdown was too late. They didn't get the kit right. Um, they're not doing uh, testing uh, um, and tracing, which is vital, which is what the South Koreans mm. and the Germans have been doing. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping and praying that we don't throw all the good things about the old times away. Um, and I'm hoping that this is going to be like the Spanish flu and that we're through it in a couple of years. And then, and then we have the roaring twenties and, and flappers yeah, and cocktails yeah. and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Bring back the flappers. Do, do you think, do you think John, it will give us a, a greater sense of uh, appreciation of the things that are important in society, like pubs, like local news, like these connections we have to each other, it will make us sort of reassess things. Yes, I feel massively. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a freelance, um, and I'm screwed, and I'm um, I'm earning a little bit. Of, I've got a, a, doing a podcast for a Hollywood company, um, a, a test one, and I'm doing um, uh, and I've got my books, which are um, which are earning a little bit of money, but not much. But I don't really care. I'm not starving, and I and I care that my 
um, my kids um, uh, and their loved ones are okay. I have to say my um, my cousin, um, who's 74, Paul Sweeney, um, he's died of the virus. Um, and he oh, was very... He was a very, very, very funny man. The moment you walked in the room, he would sort of hit you with a joke. No, like, you know, like, I love a joke, I love a story. But um, Paul and his older brother, Keith, who, who, who passed away uh, quite a bit before, uh, they were screamingly funny and would uh, shut me up. Can you imagine? Anyway, he, he, he died of the virus, so I, I know somebody who died of the virus. But I feel absolutely that I, I care very much about friends and family, family and friends in that order. But I really care about them, and I realise how much I love them and they love me. I mean, you know, my, I'm, hey, listen, let's not get too soppy. My daughter uh, accused me of being David Icke the other day. I've been defending uh, Professor Neil Ferguson and, um, because I don't think, I think what he did was wrong. Um, uh, you know, your listeners know who this guy is. He's he's Professor yeah, Lockdown, yeah. and he yeah. um, and I think he's been got at in some way. And I think the man is a hero because he put out the mathematics, which which uh, I believe has saved thousands of thousands of lives. And I think it's a bit creepy, and it makes me uneasy that he was got at in the pages of the Daily Telegraph and all of that. But no, anyway, my my daughter, who likes to have a go at me, um, she said, "Hey, you're like David Icke," and and I said, "Oh no, don't say that," you know. But um, but but I treasure family and friends. I treasure how clean the air in London is. It's really beautiful, and and I and I kind of and I I like I I only go to the supermarket um, on my bike. Um, it's a kind of exercise. I load it up, obviously, with alcohol and then, and then a bit of salad on top of the bottles. Um, <laughs> and, 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 then I sort of, uh, and then I have to wheel it back because I've overladen it with uh, too yeah, many yeah. bottles of nice Italian red and, and not enough salad. But, but um, um, it feels... Um, the air is really pure and clear and I feel we've got to be greener. Um, when we're through this do you, yeah do you think there'll be a lasting legacy or do you think we'll just revert to type mm. That's a good question. I hope um, I think that I think that uh, cycling in London cycling in Britain is a really good thing and I think that that I would hope that we are going to end up more like Amsterdam and Copenhagen for example in London mm. so we really work at it and um, we make the bike line uh, bike lanes safe and good and, and and keep that. I think um, that um, uh, pollution in central London has, has been far too... I mean, I, mm. you, you can see the sky. You can see the the, um, the bits of the moon incredibly clearly and, and stars and everything. And you think, oh, this is worth keeping. Now, um, so yes, yeah, so I feel significantly more green and I would... Um, 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 I'm going to... Um, um, I think that's the thing. I think um, people like nurses and carers and bin men. I mean, like the, the other day, my bin man yeah. came and I was yeah. um, um, just walking out and I said, thank you very much to the bin man. And I don't think I've ever said that to him and meant it. Um, mm. And I felt um, um, that I think that society and me has moved 10 degrees to the left. I believe in society passionately. I believe mm. that 
that um, um, for too long we have given rich people and rich organisations too much leeway and they've got away they've got away with a kind of murder at least a kind of theft actually not murder but they've got away with the theft of the rest of us and we've got to think police things like tax havens we've got to say to the the sunny places for shady people like jersey guernsey the isle of man malta i'm sorry you know you're not playing this game anymore you and your fancy yacht you've got to pay tax and if you're getting a bailout from the government you pay tax because this is going to cost yeah it's going to cost all of us but it's going to cost the young a lot of money to uh, to get rights and we've got to be fairer. Um, and also, at the same time, suddenly you've got a Labour leader who is smart and forensic, yeah. and the Tories are afraid of him. Now, he's not... Yeah. I, want, I want Keir Starmer to be more exciting. I want him to, um, you know, to, to admit to... I mean, he probably hasn't even smoked dope at university. He's so straight. <laughs> bit, but I know something about him, which is weird, but I'm going to share it with you, which is... Uh, there's an old friend of mine, Paul Vickers, who I first met as a researcher on What the Papers Say. And I did the 1992 election, What the Papers Say, after the election, when Kinnock lost and it was the sum that, the sum what won it. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I, uh, and, it, and it felt wrong to me what happened. Uh, anyway, Paul and I, uh, Paul was a researcher on that and Paul was a great friend. And he, he, um, he was a, a heavy drinker and... Uh, uh, he's passed away uh, now, I'm afraid to say. Uh, he wrote for Private Eye as well. He was a square basher for Private Eye, and he worked at the BBC. And he got into trouble with some of the boring people at the BBC, but the, that happens to all the good people at the BBC, <laughs> I would say. Anyway, <laughs> the, um, what he did do was he, uh, he, he lived over a brothel in North London, and his flatmate was Keir Starmer. Ah, Oh, so, uh, so now apparently, um, Keir was so straight, he was working on some case with such massive concentration mm. that a burglar came into their flat and stole the telly and, um, <laughs> and walked out. And Keir didn't know because he was concentrating <laughs> on his work. So, <laughs> so it, 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 but, but but for people who say Keir's almost a bit, uh, Sam is a bit boring. Well, he. He shared a flat with Paul, who could be Larry, who uh, who was great yeah. fun. Um, so, but anyway, on the on the big things, I think society is moving uh, is obviously moved to the left. We uh, properly and rightly we understand the value of um, of um, of social structure, and and we should immediately pay our nurses more, and we've got to look after the our carers too. And all the people in public service, hats off to them. When I, I clap I, uh, on Thursday at eight, I really, really fucking mean it. Mm, so so yeah, I've it got I've got a Keir Starmer story as well, actually, because uh, my mate Jesse. Uh, so Keir used to organise a weekly five-a-side football match. He's a keen like footballer, and my mate Jesse used to play in it. I'd imagine he's probably not going to organise that from now on. But apparently, he's a very combative central midfielder, sort of a classic sort of DMC. Which now I'm thinking about it might be the most boring position on the pitch actually that, <laughs> yeah, might, I mean, that might tally up actually but i think Keir's is an interesting person for you to talk about because obviously i watched his first pmqs and you could tell his lawyer background coming into play with his questioning and the way he was thinking about it and he's clearly someone that stands up for the little person or stands up for the right things in society and that's the impression i get from you as well john 
And is it true that you wanted to be a, be a lawyer as well when you started out? And is that where your kind of standing up for justice has always sort of come from? Well, I, I did want to be a lawyer. I, I went to, I was, I was brought up from five to ten um, in um, in Altrincham, where I've got a slight uh, northern accent. And then we, uh, because your accent fixes between five and ten most of the time. And then we moved to Hampshire, um, and um, and then I was brought up in Hampshire from ten to eighteen. Um, but I went to, I uh, wanted to be a lawyer. There was a guy called Henry Cecil who wrote lots of books about a kind of clever defence lawyer, and I, I liked this stuff, and I thought this is what I wanted to be. And then I went along to a um, um, a rape case in Winchester, or rather, I went to the Crown Court, and there was a rape case, and the, the, the detail of it was very distressing. And it was clear to me that the accused was guilty and the victim was the, uh, a true victim. Uh, but the defence guy got up and he ripped to shreds the um, yeah. uh, the poor woman's character. And I thought, this is disgusting and I don't want to do this. And my dreams of being a lawyer were broken and shattered at that very moment. And then then I... Um, um, when there was a careers evening and a guy from the Southern Evening Echo came along and he was funny and took the piss out of himself. And, and he said, people think journalism is glamorous and I'm just going to go home and watch Miss World on the telly just like everything, everybody else. <laughs> and, and there was something completely engaging about the guy who was both taking the piss out of himself, but also you could tell from his attitude that if somebody with power and money said, you shut up, he would do his damnedest to get the story out. Mm. And there was something about that I loved. And then I, um, um, I worked... I, I wrote, I've always been a good storyteller and a good writer, and I managed to get, uh, write a good letter to The Economist, and I was intern there. But The Economist wasn't for me, and I worked there when I, before I went to LSE, but it was stuffy and a bit, and a bit up its bum. And anyway, they, they got, kind of got rid of me, and then I got a job um, after university at the Sheffield Telegraph. And um, I can remember walking into the, the, the newsroom my first day, new boy, and um, a very pompous guy, um, fat guy, picked up the phone and went, uh, business, he was the business editor, business. And then uh, a, a, um, a very attractive woman picked up the phone on the news desk and went, pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Taking the piss out of the business guy. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, I'd heard the uh, the editor was a man with a beard, and a man with a beard came up to me, and I said, "Are you the editor?" Uh, and he said, "Am I the editor? Fuck off!" And uh, I said, "Well, where's the editor? I've got no idea where the fucking editor is. He's probably in fucking China, for all I know." And and that was it. Welcome to the Sheffield Telegraph. And there was a kind of yeah. it was it was on its last legs because of the uh, collapse in advertising or the slow undermining of advertising and the slow loss of readers but nevertheless uh, there were some beautiful writers and wonderful eccentrics on the paper and it had a um, it had the kind of the architecture of a grand paper which was slowly crumbling um, but nevertheless it was a wonderful four years to to learn the mistakes and uh, and all of that and I and I and I loved it and I still um, love that thing of um, of storytellers and newspapers, and there are, there, you know, I'm a lefty, but there are people on the left who hate uh, newspapers, um, and I never, and I never 
Um, they hate the Sun, they hate the Mail, and there are people I know on the Sun and the Mail who every now and then get in touch with me and tell me stories they haven't been able to do, and I know they mm. exist. Yeah. And there are times... Um, I can remember I did... The, there was um, a riot in Southall where Blair Peach was killed in 79, and the Mail ran an enormous spread, and it ran detail and stuff like, for example, in the police coach and the steamed up windows, one of the coppers had put, um, had written NF in the, um, in the steamed up windows. And that was the detail in the mail. So I have a, I'm afraid I have proper respect for the business of gathering news. And I think what Trump has done has been to poison the reputation of journalists across mm. the world. And, and I think he is, a very dangerous man. Fake news is the attitude of a tyrant, not a democrat. Mm. And and you've met him, of course. I've met him. I've met him three times. He's. Uh, can I say this? Can I say what I want to call yeah. him? He's such a can. cunt. He's such a cunt. He's he's he he's so um, he's so. We were trans- hoping you would. He's so transactional. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. um, we, we we I met him first of all in 2011 when or 2012 and we were doing a film james jones the filmmaker and i were doing a film about the mormon candidate about mitt romney um and we went to see trump we were in new york we had some spare time we phoned up trump and trump said yes because he's desperate right he's not mm-hmm. um um and he was sniffy and snotty about romney's bit and we looked at the the cut and thought, actually, he doesn't tell us anything of any interest. He's a self-publicist. He's boring. And we went snip, snip, and he never appeared in the show. Then, then he uh, in 2013. There's a story about um, a um, a golf course, which um, a very very good um, filmmaker. I think his name's Anthony Baxter. Uh, assume if I get that wrong, Anthony, who um, did a story about how Trump had been nasty to the Trump organisation, had been nasty to the fellow Scottish. Um, um, uh, the uh, his neighbours who were who didn't like the way they were um, being pushed out, and there was a Scottish farmer mm-hmm. who was belligerent um, and fantastic and very very rude about yeah. Trump, and it was great. And also there was a time when Alex Salmon was touchy feely with Trump, and um, the neighbour was rude about him too as well. But um, so I interviewed. Uh, we did a panorama about that following Anthony's film, but I was also interested in. Trump's um, uh, uh, connections with the mob and he heard one of his associates is a guy called Felix Sater who was Russian born and was connected with the Gambino family and um, uh, went to prison for stabbing um, a man uh, in the throat with a broken off stem of the margarita glass and gave him like more than 100 stitches in the throat and then this guy uh, took part in a pump and dump scum uh, scam 
um, whereby you buy a stock low, you pump it up, and then you, you get rid of it and, and you cash in for $40, 40 million. Uh, and then, um, so Felix Sater is a crook, and he was you know, um, convicted twice, I can call him that. And then um, he works, he does something for the CIA um, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and they, he, obviously there's some brownie points there. It's all a bit mysterious, but he's still a crook and a good businessman would have nothing to do with this guy hmm. because of his previous. He rocks up and basically the, the charge against him, he denies it, the Trump organization denied it, was that he was um, a front for dirty Russian money that wanted to launder its money and to get into American real estate. And he set up this company called Bayrock. And the other players in Bayrock were also suspect. But Felix Sater is the guy, clearly, with the, the convictions in America. So I said to Trump, why, why um, didn't you say to this man, Felix Sater, you're connected with a mafia, you're fired? Uh, the line from The Apprentice. And Trump invented a meeting and, and, and started walking out. And as he's uh, walking out, he offers my hand, and I say, no, 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 I'm sorry. Um... Uh, I put my, uh, I, I, I remain seated. I don't shake his hand, and I and I ask him, why did you buy your concrete from Fat Tony Salerno? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Even on, what was your paper, Jim, called again? The Uckfield Courier. The Uckfield Courier would know that Fat Tony <laughs> Salerno was was not. Uh, the uh, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, but was in fact uh, a big player for the Genovese crime family and the man who ran the mob's concrete racket in Manhattan. Yeah, Trump Tower was concrete. It's a good question. Uh, he didn't answer it. Um, my producer, she had a crush on Trump. Uh, we didn't. Uh, wow. She, <laughs> we, we 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 had our argu we had our arguments. Uh, uh, Judith, great colleague. But this wasn't... Anyway, we had an argument about this, but never mind. Uh, uh, she put her head in her hands and went... And she's Scottish and went... Oh, when I asked her about... Um, uh, why did you buy your concrete from Fat Tony Salerno? Judith went... Oh, no, John, no! And put her head in her hands. <laughs> and then, so the Trump organisation put out a video. Mindful of Sweeney's disgusting behaviour in North Korea. Um, we, we decided to tape... Uh, his interview with our, um, John uh, with uh, uh, Donald Trump. Look at the disgust on the face of the producer when he's rude to Mr. Trump. And then, uh, <laughs> oh, no, John, no. <laughs> and then the voiceover goes, well, if you missed it, here it is again. Oh, no, John, no. <laughs> the funny thing was, then uh, there's an inquiry into Trump's relationship um, um, with Felix Sater in relation to some complicated... Uh, lawsuit against him by some of the investors who feel that they were um, ripped off by the Trump organization, where it's important for Trump to deny the fact that he knew who Felix Sater was. Mm. And the, oh, no, John, no, uh, <laughs> the attack video on me was proof that his denial was a lie. Yeah. What's astonishing is Trump is still polling, you know, numbers in the in 40% uh, plus in the United yeah. States. Um, He's an enemy of democracy. He's an enemy of truth and justice. Um, mm. He's, um, he, I mean, when um, <clears throat> um, 
uh, Chris Steele, the former MI6 officer, who I don't know, never met him, but when he wrote that report, which said that um, um, uh, essentially uh, sending out the evidence that the uh, the Kremlin, uh, the Russian secret state, have compromised on Trump being a sexaholic in Moscow, I thought it entirely credible. And apparently um, yesterday he was on the phone to Vladimir Putin. Now, you know, Donald Trump is friends with, um, um, with this man and his cohorts. My friends in Russia, people like Anna Politivskaya, Natasha Estomarova, Boris Nemtsov, people I all met and admired, they all were critical of Putin and they've all been shot. So Trump is friend with the murderer and his friends, and my friends get shot. And I, um, and I wish the British government would actually uh, talk truth to power as far as Trump is concerned and say, listen, your association, your friendship, Putin, and your, you know, his warm remarks about Kim Jong-un. I mean, yeah. for fuck's sake, yes. for fuck's sake, the guy is a tyrant, Kim Jong-un. Don't wish him well, dear God. Mm. Yeah. Do you worry about any of that, any retaliation and stuff like that when you're, you know, no, I live standing in London. up to these figures? The scary stuff for me was Tommy Robinson. So what happened, if your listeners don't know, was that we planned to do a panorama about Tommy Robinson. And he's much... And I was obsessed at the time with, um, with Brexit and the funding of Brexit. And I was doing a series of investigations into Aaron Banks... And um, the man, I used to like to call him the man with snow on his boots. And um, he's got a Russian wife. And um, we found out that um, the two of them have a company called Ural Properties. Ural is a mountain chain in Russia. Urals are a mountain chain in Russia. And that had two flats overlooking the Royal Naval Base in Portsmouth. Um, So what's that mean? Mm. It means that he had two flats overlooking the uh, Royal Naval Base in Portsmouth. There's an issue about where his money came from. He denies it or concerned deny any wrongdoing. I was obsessed with this story and working hard at it. It was hard to get it on the BBC, but we could... Um, uh, and we did everything fairly and properly in edit, through the editorial guidelines. Every time we wrote to Mr Banks, this is what we're saying, What do you? Uh, what's your response? Yeah. And so in the middle of that, Panorama asked me to do this Tommy Robinson uh, film, and I wasn't concentrating on him, and I didn't realise just how uh, nasty him and his uh, organisation or his, his, his connections could be. And one of his supporters secretly filmed me. She told me that um, she'd been threatened by him, and she showed me a, a, a death threat from him uh, on the phone. If you have anything to do with this Panorama, I will bury you, you bitch. And then she went on to say that when she fell out with Tommy Robinson, some of his supporters threatened her online with threats like, I, we will give you um, an acid facial. Okay. Uh, I couldn't believe that this person would then turn back to Tommy Robinson and, and effectively w- was working for him. And I think she was a bit like Nancy in Oliver Twist, in that she both um, knew that Bill Sykes was a bad man but loved him in some weird way that I don't understand. But that's the thing that blindsided me. And what you got was video of me whining and dining her. Now, remember, I work for BBC Panorama. I cannot pay her, and I'm not going to pay her. What I can do is buy her a nice boozy uh, dinner, and she wanted one. And so 
The problem is what you see is me being a twit on tape and talking rubbish. But I don't... But what you don't see is, please, can we have some brandies? Okay. And then I said, all right, I want some brandies. Fine, fine, fine. Because I'm reacting yeah. to her. And also it's part of my job to show to her that we are, you know, we're not afraid of him and we're going to do our best to, to look after you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a tricky job to do. It's kind of like being a slightly dodgy detective sergeant who has to talk to the nasty bastards. So my mm. idea of a fun night out is not to spend Friday night in the middle of fucking nowhere in Cambridgeshire talking to somebody who wears Nazi jewellery on the quiet, which this woman did. I didn't know that at the time. No. So it was difficult. And what happened was then the um, Tommy Robinson did a film about it. And, and essentially what I said on, on tape was embarrassing, but not shaming. I didn't, um, and I, I think I could defend it. And we put the film together, but Panera or the BBC wouldn't run it. And there was a problem, I think, I well, a problem I've had with the BBC bosses was that they were too timid and they were mm. too afraid of any kind of controversy. And so um, eventually I was in an awful position of being attacked very much online, death threats and horrible threats to me and my loved ones online and in person because I'm a well-known face. And then, um, so six people had to go at me, including uh, at a funeral of a friend of mine, Lara McKee, who I knew very, uh, hardly well at all, but I met her uh, at a journalism festival in Italy. And I was challenged by one of Tommy Robinson's supporters as I'm leaving the grounds of Belfast Cathedral. So I'm in a state of shock and massive anxiety, the worst experience mm. of my life, and not being able to defend myself because the BBC didn't want me to because they wanted to put the programme out, but they never put the programme out, and I cracked up a little bit. I mean, I've got back together uh, um, in my head, and all of that seems silly, um, but my view stands that the BBC didn't have my back, and, uh, and they should have done. That was the worst experience. In Russia, you get threats... But the moment you get back to, to London, it feels okay. The same with places like Iraq or Yugoslavia back during the wars. Um, that There is a difference when suddenly you're, you feel under attack in your own home city. Um, the virus has helped me. It's given me a great... You know, it feels like a, um, it's, that whole incident is receding in my, my rearview mirror. Um, yeah. And I, I, what I want to do, my ambition is to do one more, you know, stonking good film um, for somebody, for whoever, or a really good story, which which puts puts that into perspective. I don't know what it is, mm. uh, or and I'm seriously considering becoming a uh, PR man for the Church of Scientology. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. oh, say, I mean, you've, you've, um, obviously you've, you've, um, encountered all these, um, different people and organizations. Scientology has to be up there as one of the most sinister though, surely. Yeah, it was, uh, I kind of, oh, you know, bring them back. Uh, no, they're creepy and weird, but they are very, um, what happened was in the seventies, um, they um, they framed a reporter, an American reporter, um, um, Paulette Cooper. Uh, they 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 used to frame all sorts of people and then and then knock them out. This is what Tommy Robinson, in a sense, did to me. Now, 
I helped mm. him frame me, but actually his frame was small and unfair, and and we should have said never mind. This is part of the attack. I mean, they all Scientology said that I was mad, um, bad, and dangerous to know, and they put an attack film. It's called Black Panorama. It's out there somewhere saying that I'm psycho um, and uh, and I can remember uh, Simon Hoggart who's very very funny a writer for the Observer and the Guardian he's dead now but uh, very he used to write a, uh, brilliantly funny political sketches but he, he uh, when I lost my temper at the Church of Scientology he just he, he just wrote you've got to understand that's how Sweeney orders a cappuccino <laughs> 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 which which it isn't <laughs> but uh, they were anyway after this um, attack on Paul at Cooper eventually um, they started uh, Scientology went crazy and started burglaring um, um, FBI officers and eventually the FBI raided Scientology's headquarters and found the evidence of this dreadful operation and so since then Scientology harasses and intimidates, throws money, um, fires off lots and lots of legal threats, um, and has you followed by private eyes all the time, but won't do anything which will cause a court case. And once you know that, then um, you do that. And we had a, uh, on that film, we had a brilliant um, producer, a great friend of mine, Sarah Mole, uh, and she's from Essex. And um, she said, "Hey, John, uh, you seen Jurassic Park, ain't ya?" And I said, "Yes, I have, Sarah." And he, right then, you know that bit that the tethered goat and the T Rex comes for it. Well, John, <laughs> you're the tethered goat. You can breathe, can't ya? And, and that's exactly. By the way, uh, her friends might say that she actually doesn't talk quite like that. But, like that. Uh, but <laughs> well, if I got a, uh, we did a uh, the previous year, um, we did a film about the Kabbalah Center, uh, which is a crazy cult that Madonna was into. And having done the Kabbalah Center, we thought, fuck it, let's go for Scientology. Uh, but there's a moment um, we we um, we sent in. An undercover reporter to 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 find out what it was like inside the Kabbalah Center, and uh, uh, and uh, and so I was allowed to write the script, which were, which included this point, because Sarah was the undercover report uh, undercover investigator, and the script line which appeared in the program was so we decided to send in a mole. <laughs> 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 and, uh, part of the. Part of the joy of uh, what I used to do when I was at the BBC was to write like about, you know, 40 gags uh, for a panorama and then just see how many uh, would get through. And they would, I mean, you know, they're so boring and scared and careful and, and actually good for me. And it was a, always a good relationship. And I miss, I miss the gang, I miss panorama and I wish them well. But they would knock out like 37 of the 40 gags, but that would be three left. And each one was a fucking victory. And, and there was, yeah. there was, uh, there was. We did one. Uh, I did one about Putin um, and um, um, uh, Putin's Olympics and talking to the opposition. Um, um, and um, they built a stupid fancy road to a ski resort. And Boris Nemtsov said it would have been. This road cost five billion. Uh, dollars, enormously expensive because of corruption in Russia. 
and Boris Nemtsov said it would have been cheaper to have paved this road with Louis Vuitton handbags. Uh, <laughs> but also, Putin had a, a, a villa, um, a Luna Poliana, um, and and I said, so uh, not far from here, P- uh, Putin has a secret um, uh, mansion in the mountains. It's called Lunaya um, uh, Poliana Luna Moonglade. And then we got the music from the satellites in You Only Live Twice. Oh, uh, do you know that? Perfect. Do, yeah, do, yeah. Do, do. And yeah, we overlaid yeah. it. And then we sort of like, we, we stuck it there and you just wait for Andy Head, the executive editor, uh, Panorama Belfast, who's a Puritan. And I once, when I was pissed off with him for some reason, he's a brilliant journalist and a good bloke. Um, I was pissed off with him and I sent a Ladybird book because in the Ladybird book they had a Puritan with a um, a sour face looking at people uh, dancing with a male uh, maypole. It was one of those Ladybird his, uh, Tudors and Stuarts. Anyway, yeah. I ordered, I ordered, I ended up ordering the wrong book, and they sent the wrong book, and he just couldn't understand why somebody had <laughs> sent him something about Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> 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 but but Andy, for some reason, let the uh, the satellite stuff like, and, and this piece of camera. They they call it. <laughs> and then you hear the Bond villain music. So, so those are the um, uh, um, those are happy, happy moments of, of stuff. Yeah. I was talking the other day. We did a great film, uh, which I'm very proud of, about uh, about the post office uh, locking up postmasters um, for stealing money from their post offices, where in fact. Um, there was something wrong with their computer and their computer was changing the numbers and it, uh, it was making innocent people look crooks. And um, Andy had a great idea that I would ride a a really knackered um, 1983 post office telegram moped that they used to deliver telegrams. And I would drive this and we they found there was a sub postmistress who had almost gone to prison and was a lovely person. And one of these wrong postmistresses. She lived in a lovely hilly bit of Hampshire, and then my job was to drive up and down this thing. This fucking thing would conk out, and then I'd have to get off, and, and then and, and then push it up the fucking hill to get to the top, and then start uh. it. And then and then I think it was underpowered, and I'm 17 stone, and it wouldn't work, and everything. <laughs> and and the only shots they or they use some shots of me just you know just locked on camera, and it goes past. But some of the shots. Are just me puffing and grunting as I push this fucking thing up the hill. I, I stall it it's slowly, so, and it's a metaphor th- for the post office computer. But, uh, <laughs> you get a flavour of it. I was thinking yeah. just now how important it is actually to have those light moments in in what are obviously very very difficult subjects and challenging subjects that you you've encountered. Actually, those light moments are actually quite vital. Sometimes just take a breath as a viewer um, when you're watching something as challenging as you know the end of the world, which is you know <laughs> the sort of thing that you're <laughs> you've been looking at. <laughs> reported on that and frankly I don't want to or if I do I want to be in a pub with a nice uh, pint of Guinness in my hand but um, 
I yes, yeah. uh, Primo Levi wrote in um, I think if not now when that um, just a simple phrase even in Auschwitz people laughed. So you know th- there were there were conversations the poor wretches inside um, the death camps th- they would have f- um, jokes amongst themselves and and when times are dark um, humor dark humor is a shield. I did a story, I did a panorama about the Bataclan, and I met this lovely couple. He was uh, English, she was French, and they hid amongst the dead, pretending to be dead. And then uh, uh, on Sunday, uh, Bataclan happened Friday night. Uh, I, I interviewed them on Sunday, and um, the program went out on Monday. But essentially, I... Uh, I um, I interviewed and I wrote a, a draft script and then I caught the first train um, back on uh, Monday morning so we could, uh, and it was already being edited overnight by the team back in London. But um, we went out for dinner on, on Sunday night and we invited this couple who were absolutely shell-shocked. And um, I can remember um, uh, the woman uh, being very scared and I got a the biggest cameraman in the BBC and she wanted to sit in the restaurants so she could look at the window and uh, so you could see people passing and I said fine and I put the biggest fattest cameraman on BBC uh, Dave Lang and six foot nine in front of her so she couldn't see a damn thing and then I sat next to him and something so there was just a wall of BBC fatties and then the waiter came along and said, um, what would you like to drink? And I said, let's start with five bottles of Coke de Rhone, the expensive one. And the deputy editor was going, oh, God. Anyway, <laughs> fuck it, we're having a drink. Hmm. And, and the guy said, listen, I'm worried that my sense of humour is getting so dark. And I said, no, this is your shield. Hold on to your dark sense of humour. And, and then we did a whole series of uh, you know, dark, dark, dark stories and other cameramen, other producers around the table all chipped in. And at the end of it, the bloke said, you know, uh, John, this has been such a funny evening. It was almost worth it. <laughs> now, now, I actually feel kind of proud of... I know that's, uh, hey, go see a psychiatrist. I've seen two with the Tommy Robinson thing. I was... I, um, I, I was... I was in trouble and actually weirdly, weirdly just making the decision, all right, I'll go and see a psychiatrist was, mm. the, was the moment I went on the recovery. And they, and also I had a secret weapon, which is so I'm in a dispute with the BBC, like they're, they're, they're trying to get rid of me. And I'm saying, well, I was, I've, I've been driven a bit crazy but because I was work-related stress. So the issue mm-hmm. is... Was I was this work-related stress genuine or not? Was I, you know, gilding the lily or was I in trouble? Mm. So let's go see a psychiatrist. And the moment um, I thought things were going to go well for me was when the psychiatrist said, "I, uh, I saw your documentary on Scientology," <laughs> because Scientologists hate psychiatrists, and I am weirdly. A poster boy for international psychiatry. They love me, and I have done a gig at the Excel Centre um, for international uh, psychiatry symposium, 
where I got Sir Simon Wesley, uh, then the Royal, uh, the president of the Royal College of Psychiatry, to dance to Saturday Night Fever while reading out John Travolta's <laughs> rubbish about Scientology. And if you've, ever seen, if you've ever seen the president of the Royal College of Psychiatry dance, then, you know, he is no John Travolta, folks. <laughs> but... Humour, and this is kind of like, it's VE day today, 75 years since we uh, 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 we defeated the Nazis. We de- helped defeat the Nazis, obviously. The Russians did the lion's share, the Americans uh, paid for it, and they had fantastic economic stuff. But we held out um, when everybody else um, was in grave trouble. And so, but the things that I read... I'm fascinated by the Second World War, but the books that make it come alive for me are the books which are funny. Um, um, so uh, Spike Milligan's um, Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall, Gosh, is a screamingly British. funny book which takes the piss out of the British army the whole time. And then there are tiny moments when there's, you know, he's in a London regiment and they're on, they're, um, on the coast having a good time shagging and finding beer and drinking and, and, uh, and not doing much because the Germans haven't arrived. Um, and they can hear and see the, um, um, the bombers going to London. And then this is awful moment. The, the men are okay, the soldiers are okay, but what about their wives and children and loved ones mm. back in the city? Um, and th- th- that, that stuff feels very moving, but also the jokes... And the jokes, I mean, there's a guy who died recently, Berries, it's a lovely wine shop, which I can't really afford going to, but the moment this is over, I'm going to go to Berries and buy myself a fancy bottle of, of nice red. And his, the guy who ran it, who died, his obituary was recently, he was in Destroyers. And um, it was all fitted up for the Arctic. And then they sent the Destroyer to Malta. And so they're in the, everything is wrong. You know, they're, they're, there's no coolers, there are only massive heaters. And uh, they're in the um, and they they work their you know they work, risk their lives every day in the siege of Malta, and then um, finally uh, the thing is so smashed up it has to go into dock and they fix it up for for the summer, and then the moment the ship is ready off they go to the Arctic convoy. <laughs> like, like, yeah. uh, oh God! And there's this awful sense. That this is how it is. That you know, uh, Gustav Flaubert yeah. read this. It's yeah. a lovely line. Our ignorance of history makes us slander our own times. Things have always been like this. So I do hope and pray um, that um, we'll um, we'll get our lives back. Pubs will be back open. Um, we'll miss all our loved ones who've, who've died in this awful fucking thing. But we'll get through it. Mm. I was going to say, obviously, this podcasts about blank moments and difficult moments and i was just going back to that um that time that you have you know you've parted for the bbc has that been your most challenging thing that you've had to deal with during your career it it felt like it at the time now it feels um i can put it in perspective um and it feels listen i'm listen i'm talking about it and it's fine and i want to i mean i i feel um Yes, it was probably the worst moment because I had two enemies. I had, it felt like I had two enemies. I had Mm -hmm. the enemy in front of me, Tommy Robinson, and I had the enemy behind me, the BBC, or rather my 
the people who should have been supporting me mm, uh, yeah. were were somehow not there, and that was um, that was um, very very challenging. And mm. yes, so it's I, that's the darkest moment of my professional career. Um, I um, physically, obviously, I've been um, you know in places like Sarajevo in '92 and. Uh, uh, you know, Yugoslavia, Iraq, um, Africa, um, Afghanistan, where you can, you know, get blown up, step on a mine. Um, I've, I've been about a thousand yards from a bomb in Chechnya. When a bomb falls, the earth shakes. It's really, really terrifying because mm-hmm. the mass is, um, you know, it's like dropping. It's the weight of a, of a big old car. Um, 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 condensed uh, being dropped and the whole earth shakes and, and it's like very, very, very loud uh, reggae music, you know, the stuff that can churn your guts. Same with the shell. Physically, that's more frightening. But the worst thing is the psychological thing of being got at online and not mm. being supported. Um, but I feel, I feel I'm through that. I still feel angry... Uh, with some BBC bosses about that, but I also feel the BBC is a good thing. I will always pay my licence fee. The BBC should be cherished. I'm worried that this Leave.eu government uh, doesn't get that. Mm-hmm. I think the virus has probably saved its bacon. I hope so. It's part of our culture. It's part of what it is to be British, and we need to defend it. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I guess when you're putting yourself in those kind of dangerous situations, you need support. You need someone getting your your back. We all do anyway with all the jobs we do. But I think when you're, you know, in your particular career, you're putting yourself out there trying to deliver these stories. You need someone keeping your back. That's 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 the basic. Yes, um, my um, uh, one of my um, uh, best mates, Andrew Billen, who's a, a lovely uh, columnist um, well, and interviewer for the Times. Um, his dad, Roy. Um, was in in the bombers, and I think he did seventy missions, and um, and we were talking about the the dangers of going to Sainsbury's, and, <laughs> and Andrew said, you know, I've got to I've got to say he's he's not like you know, and what he's doing, he's shopping for his missus and his daughters, and also there's an elderly couple um, across the road from him in Oxford, and he shops for them too, so he has to do a big shop. And he, he said, you know, I, there are times when, you know, I think to myself, is this what my dad felt as he was going over Berlin again? And then, and then he said, well, no, it's just going to the fucking supermarket. <laughs> 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 uh, but I, um, I miss... I'm, I, now, one of the problems is that the as a freelance, I've been waiting uh, to establish my name as a freelance thing, and it's hard to get the balance right. And yeah. both, both the election and now the virus have, have slowed that down. But to be fair, um, um, you know, my cousin Paul accepted all my, uh, and he wasn't a very healthy man, to be fair, but very, very funny. But nevertheless, all my loved ones, and in particular the young ones in my family, they're all good and. I can feel, I think the lockdown is right and we should carry, the longer we carry on the lockdown, the more fun we can have in the summer and almost certainly there'll be another lockdown and another peak and more deaths. Though though I know from my experience in places like uh, Yugoslavia and Iraq that um, society's become calloused so that after a time, because we're used to the new normal, then we will go, 
hell we've got to um, we've got to balance yeah. this stuff right because we've become effectively more brutal. Mm. But um, uh, and, and that's a that's just the truth of, of human condition. I don't want to be critical of people, um, but um, but yes, um, that time was grim. I feel through it, and therefore. I'm looking forward to make um, fresh trouble um, yeah. wherever I can. <laughs> I'm looking forward to you doing that as yeah. well. I am too. Um, I was going to ask you just one more question about um, you. Obviously, got this your new podcast, the Last Call, which you do with Michael Vice. Um, and uh, the the main question that you started off the podcast with is who, which country is more fucked, the USA or the UK? And um, I know you're still sort of going over that question but current standings oh it's it's got to be trump has not it <laughs> yeah i mean like don't like, don't like i mean nobody listens to this right yeah okay so like, yeah. <laughs> don't tell mike yeah no like there's no comparison i mean also these 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 morons with machine guns assault right yeah. they're machine guns who 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 then go up to you know i'm i'm i don't believe in science now this is this is a real problem. The collapse of newspapers is if you were a nutter and you wrote a stupid letter to a newspaper, the newspaper wouldn't print it. The internet doesn't do that. And so there's a real danger. Mm. There's a real danger. Yeah. I feel... I feel... Um, no, it, it scares me because it undermines... It doesn't kill democracy, but it undermines it and debases it. And that's something mm. that worries me, but I think America is more dangerous. I just want, for a second, I want to talk about... Um, Something I've, I've written a novel called uh, The Useful Idiot, and yes. it's set in Stalin's Russia in 1933, and there was a terrible famine. Maybe 7 million people mm-hmm. died. More Ukrainians, or many, many Ukrainians, uh, and Russians too. And mm. essentially the Kremlin used and abused and bribed and threatened the Western press corps in Moscow with sex and power and gold to lie about this famine, this awful famine. And there were three great journalists who told the truth. One was Malcolm Muggeridge, who I met. One was Fred Beale, an American Trotskyist. And one was Gareth Jones. And the novel, my novel, The Useful Idiot, is about Gareth Jones. And he, he was killed, Muggeridge was sacked, and Beale was ignored. But one of... Uh, somebody, one of the reviewers of the book, who said, "Actually, this isn't. This is, you know, this is historical fiction, but actually, it feels like a work of historical futurism, mm. because yeah. this was fake news in 1933." So, this problem we've got right now of the undermining of fact and the undermining of good journalism isn't something that's that's new to us. This is the first time it's happened. It happened before. And when it happens, there is grave trouble for ordinary people. So uh, we've got to believe in uh, that journalism is a good thing. And if you disagree with me, then go to North Korea. <laughs> yeah. But as you're saying that, it makes me think, will, will, will people ever learn a, a, to combat fake news? Because if it happened so long ago and it's happening now, does it just keep happening? Or do we ever get to a point where people will think, this is clearly a lie? Or is it just something that keeps happening? You, you, what you've got to... Um, so it's odd. So whenever I think about the virus, am I going to get the virus here? Whatever I'm going to do, I think about it carefully and I try and, I try and work out the odds. And essentially, at the moment, the odds are very much in our favour. Um, but there is a... Um, 
Um, I think that if you can get... I mean, when I was thinking about Tommy Robinson, generally in most democracies, one out of ten people are a bit fascist. doesn't matter because nine out of ten aren't. Hmm. When you get to a station, a situation of social unease, depression, austerity, and this is going to happen maybe with this, we'll see where we go with this bloody thing. You get two out of ten um, uh, people are fascistic. That's worrying, and that happened when there was um, the Dutch, for example, uh, was supporting um, um, the Dutch guy. I've forgotten his name, uh, Gert, um, Gert something, Gert Wilders. Two out of ten um, people in Holland support um, supported him for a time. That's scary. The same with Marie Le Pen. That's scary. Three out of ten. Hitler got to power on thirty-three percent of the of the vote mm-hmm. in Germany, and he was helped, of course, by the German Communist Party, who were ordered by Stalin to support the communists uh, to support the Nazis mm. against the Social Democrats, the Social Fascists. Is how the Stalinists called them. This was a great mistake, which again I look at and um, and play with in my novel, The Useful Idiot. But but what you're looking at here is a um, if, if you get to three out of ten, and people like Hitler can get in. So our job is you're never gonna you're never gonna win arguments with the with the one out of of, of ten yeah. people, mm-hmm. and it's to it's to try and do our best to explain it, our stories, the truth, in the most entertaining and powerful and honest way um, that we can. Um, and that is a job well worth doing, and it's a job I've, I've been proud to do so far. Who knows? <laughs> well, by the way, when this is over, who's buying the drinks? Not me, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay. <laughs> so I'm going to have a pint of Guinness to begin with okay. in the toucan and then uh, cheese and onion tato crisps and then I'm going to have another pint of Guinness and another and another and another and another <laughs> we'll buy the drinks we'll buy the drinks in the toucan be... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and then great. then we yeah oh, fucking hell I could murder a pint I understand the lockdown I want it to continue until we're until uh, the numbers go down, and then we can muck about uh, fairly and properly. Yeah, but yeah. I miss you know, I miss the old life. But there we are. Yeah, yeah, same, same. That one out of ten is terrifying. Actually, that the way you, the way you just described it is actually uh, is terrifying. Is terrifying. It's well, we can you know you can live with it, but we don't we we don't have as much safe space as you think. Mm. You know, our, um, it's okay. For the moment, um, I f- I feel though I feel that we'll uh, we'll get through this. I also hope that, that we'll bounce back quickly. Uh, this is about you know, but like, will I spend money when when we're allowed out? Oh, hoo, hoo, yes, you know, and I think that goes for everybody. You know, yeah, you all yeah. know that. Um, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Well, John, we've we've you've had such a fascinating career, and yeah. we've covered so many different things on this podcast. Um, 
which you've done and accomplished. Um, we normally finish the pod by asking our guests about blank moments and how they get through blank moments and any advice you might have for our listeners who are dealing with a blank moment or a difficult moment. I know we've sort of, we've sort of uh, alluded to it a bit with, um, with the situation you have with the BBC, but yeah, if you have any advice for people who are in, having a difficult time, particularly at the moment, I guess, where, you know, mental health is obviously a big issue for a lot of people. I, I yeah, well, listen, I mean, you, you can, you know, um, um, I'm a robust guy. I'm an old war reporter and I, um, I, uh, cracked up last year under pressure. Um, and I, I was eventually able to understand that my old career was over and that, um, that helped me getting help, um, helped me seeing the psychiatrist really helped me. And it was kind of like weirdly the moment I was in the waiting room, I thought this is going to be all right. The, the waiting room was the worst bit actually. And then once I met the psychiatrist and he said, Oh, I saw your Scientology. I'm not advising people to go and make a film about Scientology, but, uh, <laughs> but seeking help really helped. Uh, I have to say, uh, I'm looking at the creature right now, my dog, uh, Bertie, um, simple animal pleasures of uh, your dog, um, your uh, your kids reconnecting that, your mates getting your your mates to take the piss out of you. I I um, um, uh, that really helped me, but it's difficult. What I kept on saying to myself is, "Don't worry, John, you'll get through this," and and that and that became true. And the other thing is to, to people. You know, there are times when things seem really, really dark and bleak. And you've just got to say to yourself, you know, just hold in there, be resilient, and things will get better. And the other things is that things like, for example, the virus. I mean, I was... The virus has made me look back at the Tommy Robinson thing and say, actually, that was pathetic. And I'm a good reporter, and I'm a natural storyteller. And the idea that, that um, I've been knocked out of the business of storytelling by this, well, actually, you know, neo-Nazi cunt, in my view, yeah. is uh, in my in my uh, firm view because he he told the far right to um, 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 the, 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 for too long the German people have lived under uh, the guilt of Adolf Hitler. Don't say that there to those people. Just don't say that. But yeah. by the way, you can see what's happening here is that I don't actually like talking about the thing you're asking me about, and I'm going off on a tangent, which is what I do sometimes, or what I do all the time. So it is very, very difficult where you feel very, very bleak, and I've mm. been there. But what you've got to try and think of is you can get through this. I think walking is great. The longer you walk, because I was exhausted, I couldn't sleep properly, yeah, and yeah. and I made myself walk, walk further than I'd want to walk to exhaust myself. For a time, it wasn't long, but ten days, I gave up alcohol, and and that helped me because it just said, "All right, I can give up alcohol if I want to." And I like a drink um, is an understatement, but nevertheless, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't long. But it said, "Okay, I, I think I'm in charge of this," and 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 I got help. Um, so, but you, you, you know, to everybody who's listening, you can get through this stuff. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the cloud, the dark clouds, um, lessen, and then suddenly there's a, a chink of sunlight 
and that sort of yeah. tunnels through yeah, and yeah. and that moment you know that moment is great and actually fuck it you know look at this now you know, i really oh god i don't want to die of the virus i want to die of a heart attack shagging somebody or alcohol poisoning <laughs> i mean you know but not the fucking virus <laughs> Excellent. That is the uh, best way to end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John, that's fantastic advice, fantastic stories, and please keep causing trouble. Thank you. Yeah, John Sweeney, thank you so much. There you go. We said it was a good chat, didn't we? Some of those stories, incredible. John has done so much stuff in his career. I mean, just, it, you know, you sort of, you start to sort of talk about one particular area and then John will say, oh, well, I was, there was a bomb that went off right near me in Sarajevo yeah. and, and um, you know, when talking to, to uh, Donald Trump about the mob and, I mean, just, uh, just incredible, you know. Probably the ideal person to have as a dinner party guest, I think. I was thinking that. Yeah, just oh, I'd love to spend an evening with him in the pub chatting over all this stuff because um, just a fascinating individual. All the little stories, all the producers that have got their head in their hands when he's asking Trump <laughs> yeah. his question. Just great, great sort of behind the scenes stories. And um, yeah. yeah, actually, weirdly, I know I was sort of saying on it like when he was describing about the one in 10 being a mm. fascist and then the way that changes with kind of media manipulation mm. and when people, society goes through things. And that was quite a terrifying way to put it. But actually, the way then John goes on to explain that and the way we end the podcast, it actually sort of made me feel feel sort of better about things. So I think when I'm in feeling down, if I could just give John a call just to help me kind of make sense of the world, uh, I think it'd be a very useful person to have on the end of a phone line. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, it was a lovely way to end as well. And um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, John is a great storyteller. And I think that's what's come across. Well, and that's, um, and that's his, his career. That's and, what's been his yeah. career. Absolutely. And that is the, the brilliant thing about storytelling. It, it allows us to tackle difficult subjects um, in a way that is compelling. And sometimes it can be discomforting, but other times it can be very reassuring. So, yeah. Exactly. And I'm looking forward to seeing what John does next as well. You know, his brilliant podcast as well is definitely worth a listen. Yeah. And um, he's, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what he does next as well. So thank you, John, so much for joining us on the blank podcast and that wraps up another episode so uh, go and enjoy the sunshine mate oh you too jim go and spend some time with your lovely family i will do you too take care uh, have a good week and uh we'll see you again next week on the blank podcast Thank you.